Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and hell is watching MTG preside over the house. We have a fascinating show today. Brian Stelter joins us to talk about the media. Then we will talk to Ann Alberg and Deb McClutchy, the directors of the Martha Mitchell Effect, about the important movie they just made and why Martha Mitchell's story matters. But first, we have the recounts, Slade Somer, to talk about what we just saw during Biden's State of the Union address. Welcome to Fast Politics for a special post State of the Union Fast Politics with my friend and yours, Slade. Hey, what's going on? Well, we just watched the Biden speech. It was about an hour and a half. Yeah, well, you know, by the time he, yeah, probably about an hour, 15, hour 20, definitely. He read it very fast, which was a long speech. Before he started, we heard television pundits saying it was going to be a long speech, but he sort of tried to catch up. I don't know. I thought that was a very good speech. And again, you know, I'm a partisan. I'm on the opinion side. So I, you know, am predisposed to want to like a Biden speech. 
But it was a really well-crafted speech, I thought. Yeah, I mean, the the best thing I will say about it is that he baited Republicans incredibly well tonight. Incredibly. He got them on the record saying Social Security and Medicare is a great thing and they will never touch it. Right, that was amazing. You know, he got them on the record on the debt ceiling. He got that, you know, he literally went there and said, I'm going to start by saying I, I am the king of bipartisanship. And then and then he took that turn with the I'll see you at the groundbreaking, talking about the infrastructure. <laughs> and then it That's was all right. bets are off. He was like, check your facts. Come at me, bitch. He really went hard into baiting them. And by the end, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, at the, the sideline of her of a kid's soccer game, like screaming <laughs> at the referee, you know, in some outrageous evil layer coat. It was incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, and and the stuff that he was bringing up was, you know, watching uh, McCarthy refuse to clap for giving teachers a raise. I mean, these are hardly controversial ideas, right? Raises for teachers. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I, I mean, it's like, should we kill puppies or not kill puppies? Let's not kill puppies. I mean, so I do think ultimately it did make McCarthy. I mean, when he's sitting there, you know, he's saying that he's not against monopoly. He got Republicans even to boo non-competes where a burger flipper can right. go across the street to a different burger restaurant. And that got booed. I like, yeah, just genuinely like you could sit some out, you know, that's the thing about politics in 2023. Just like sit some out, let, let some of these lines go over like a lead balloon and not to bring balloons into this. Right. But, right, right. You know, Republicans would be better served by just ignoring the guy every once in a while. You know, I, I will say just one quick thing though. My favorite part of the speech was when he went into like Joe Biden's travel tips and he was like resorts that aren't resorts. <laughs> and I like tuned out for a second and then tuned back in. And I was like, is this guy talking about like sandals? What's, what's going on here? I wasn't following that. There were I mean, it was a long speech. Let's let's call a spade a spade here. It but yes, there were I mean, he definitely there was a lot of non-controversial stuff that he got Republicans to be completely against, which I thought was interesting. You heard Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert at various points screaming about the border when he brought up fentanyl. I don't know. I mean, again, this is this whole idea that all this fentanyl is is coming through the border, which, you know, there certainly is fentanyl coming into this country, but a lot of it is coming from China. I definitely think Republicans ended up kind of being caught flat footed because we're used to these very I mean, Biden's speeches have been good, but I'm not sure that I, I think this was one of Biden's best speeches. Yeah, I think it was good. I think the fact that he kind of blew through the applauses with just continuing the speech was very smart, especially in the first half hour or so. You know, he set the tone that he wanted to, like, tell you what's going on. I'm going to get through it, especially at a time when a lot of people in the media business are saying, like, can we get back to the days where you just send an email and, like, (laughs) you know, you don't need any of this pop and circumstance? You know, but look, there were a couple significant things there that, you know, we we are focusing on at the recount with like, 
you know, I thought the the reiteration for a 20% tax on billionaires was was really important. Right. You know, I thought the, you know, reiteration of assault weapons ban was really important. Did you see McCarthy's face when Biden brought up the billionaire tax? Oh, yeah. Just pained. <laughs> like, I'm going to get some calls tomorrow. Yes. I think, you know, speaking of McCarthy, look, I, I'm not a guy who... You know, if anyone's listening to this podcast and you're like, well, these guys are talking a lot about optics. Look, I'm not at all an optics guy, but at the same time, optics matter. And like Kevin McCarthy sitting behind Biden, falling asleep for half of it, rolling his eyes for a quarter of it and being a, you know, perturbed, I don't know, rich guy for the other quarter of it. Like, I think he underestimated how tough it is to sit in a chair behind the president of the United States for an hour and a half talking at the State of the Union. I think he's going to get some pretty negative reviews tomorrow. Well, I also think that you could see him sort of not quite knowing what to do. And if we've seen one thing in McCarthy since his 15 tries at the speakership, it's that he doesn't really know what to do. And so you find him a lot of times like, I mean, I actually, I mean, I think McCarthy is, is not a great human, but I appreciate the fact that he is like, I'll just wing it. And then everything turns out to be a disaster like that. I appreciate because I'm like, I get that, man. I get being someone who's like, I can just figure this out on the fly and then having everything fall apart. But I think that's what happened tonight. Yeah. It's just funny, like McCarthy just gets hung out to dry from his caucus, like an hour before the State of the Union told Manu Raju on CNN, like, we're going to act with decorum, we're going to act with, you know, like, everything he says is just undercut by the clowns of it all. I saw a ton of people on Twitter calling Marjorie Taylor Greene Cruella DeVille, like, what an insult to Cruella DeVille. <laughs> <laughs> well, that whole, that fur I was genuinely jacket. insulted by that, like, you know, not even just... The amazing Cruella movie, which I really stand pretty hard. But, you know, just in general, like Glenn Close, uh, you know, Emma Stone. These are these are women of character. These are real evil villains. I don't want to hear that right. shit about Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I mean, continues to be sort of just out of her depth. I'm just sort of impressed that she doesn't seem to be embarrassed by any of this behavior. You know, she tried today to bring a balloon. I don't know what she was doing with that balloon. It was to troll Biden for not having shot down the balloon sooner, even though the military told him that this was the time to shoot down the balloon. I don't know. I mean, that, you know, there's so many of these things we're seeing in this modern day partisanship where Republicans just will not, you know, it doesn't matter how Biden does it, it's wrong to them. Yeah. And, you know, that brings up a good question. We actually had this debate during the speech, you know, in the recount newsroom tonight, we're all in the office. One of my producers, Steve said like, you know, they hate this guy. And I was like, I don't know. I find a little bit of it like WWE performative kind of stuff. Right. I don't know the answer to that. Like, I don't know if he's right or I'm right or it's somewhere in the middle. Is this specific Republican Party who was in that room tonight, the people who were heckling, the people who were, you know, Joe Wilsoning, channeling their inner Joe Wilson, you know, did they mean it or are they trying to get airtime here? I don't know the answer to that question, but it, it just, I don't know. It's either silly or, or crazy or whatever. Well, and I think it depends on who it is. Biden comes from, and I think I think he did a pretty good job of articulating this. You know, he said, I'm like the oldest, I've been in this institution longer than all of you, which is true. 
And one of the things that I think, you know, he there's a folksiness to like being a member of Congress and the Senate that has been there for a long time. And I think like he is much more he harkens back to those days of like, you know, the days of of conservative justices being friends with liberal justices. Yeah. And I think that actually ultimately right now is is actually really good. Yeah. Speaking of, do you see they let Breyer and Ken Anthony Kennedy back in? <laughs> Unbelievable. They, all of a sudden they walked in, you know, the just the I think five of them, the justices were there and then Breyer and Anthony Kennedy were right behind them. And I was like, what year? Wait, this is live, right? I, uh, you know, I thought I was going crazy there for a second. <laughs> I mean, the Supreme Court is just such a like fraught institution right now. I spend so much time talking to people on this podcast about the many ways in which the Supreme Court is really failing this country. So in some ways, having these older guys back there, you know, who were who were part of the Supreme Court when it was less terrible is kind of a nice recall. Absolutely. I don't know. You know, overall, I can't tell whether or not I love this or I hate this with like a live a live room. Not the Supreme Court. I think I I think I hate that altogether. But, um, you know, in terms of in terms of what happened tonight, you know, a live room where, you know, it's like one part deaf comedy jam and one part prime minister's (laughs) questions or whatever. Right. You know, part of me likes it. Part of me thinks that if you're going to go pomp and circumstance, if you're going to go spectacle, you might as well go all in. You know, I I think it's different when when the Joe Wilson, Uli Obama joint session moment happened in that I feel like that was one guy being a jackass. This, I feel like modern politics are ridiculous. We are in an absurd period of politics. I don't think it's a game. I don't think it's ESPN. I don't think it's SportsCenter, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, like, I look at what happens in the UK and while they're also a dumpster fire, like, I don't know, I kind of respect it. Like, you got something to say, you say it. Who's the fucking president? Who cares? You know, like, let's let's mix it up a little bit. I don't know. Controversial, baby. They're looking pretty bad right now. I want to talk to you about this idea, which I think is really something we should be talking about, which is Jamal Bowman, uh, who's been on this podcast and who I know pretty. I mean, I don't know him that well, but I know him a little was yelling at Bernie Sanders. You wrote the speech. You wrote the whole thing. Someone smart tweeted being a progressive reformer is hard work. You often end up isolated and ostracized. Your candidates often lose. But what matters is that your ideas and policies win the long fight. This is a very different, more progressive Democratic Party than it was 10 years ago. Go. Why agree with most of that, you know, I think there were some lines from Biden that were thrown in that were definitely Biden, you know, all the bipartisanship for the first right, 10 minutes of that, a, getting right. everybody to stand up and applaud the police. I don't necessarily right. know that Bernie would have right. done. You know, there were a couple moments there that I think, you know, were, were vintage Biden, you know, the old guy. I will say, you know, Bernie is the exact type of guy who. I, I think doesn't mind that ostracization, ostracization and doesn't mind that solitude. And, you know, if, if it could be anybody who had a hand in moving this party to the left, right. I think I think Bernie's the guy to like take the, 
you know, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you. Then all of a sudden the president gives a state of the union that has all your ideas. You know, if yeah. that were the updated uh, version of that, that cliche, you know, I think Bernie's the right guy to do it, you know, much more so than Elizabeth Warren, who, you know, is much more of a folksy. But if you looked at Warren during that speech, she was delighted. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying anything negative about Elizabeth Warren. What I'm saying is like, yeah, no, no. But I mean, it does seem like that both of them had a lot of their ideas reflected there in a way that you wouldn't think. Yeah. And it was tough to tough to know Bernie's expressions because he was wearing the mask tonight, which was nice. <laughs> to see. Yeah. I mean, I also think like it's always sort of tough to read Bernie. But from what little I know of him, which is that I did interview him for this podcast, he I think he cares more about his ideas being adapted than he does about the personal glory, though. I don't know him well in any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, a lot of these progressive guys, I mean, I think of my grandfather was like, you know, he was older than Bernie, but he was that same Jewish, Jewish Brooklyn guy who, you know, really believed in these values, you know, in the sort of more socialist values. And I do think those guys are like on a, on a real mission in a way. Yeah. I mean, look. Everything you need to know about Bernie's impact on the Democratic Party is just look at Obama's first cabinet. You know, Obama, this great reformer who every Republican called the biggest socialist to ever exist in the United States, you know, it was city group and you know, right. like his entire cabinet was like recycled politicians and Wall Street guys. I'm not saying this isn't a knock on Barack Obama. It's a sign of the times. Look at Obama's first, you know, even with the makeup of the House and the Senate, like look at his first four years in office was a very, very conservative brand of liberalism. And fast forward six, seven years, whatever it was, when Bernie started to run, even then it was still like, wow, Bernie's saying some stuff that just is not going over well in America. You know, right. now all of a sudden we have ideas that are being put out in the Democratic Party that are almost to the left of Bernie Sanders. Right. I think it's incredible that that you bring this up and that you, you know, want to discuss this because I think it's an incredible point. I just think at like, look at the Obama administration, look at what Hillary was running on. The Democratic Party is a fundamentally different party because of people like Bernie Sanders, not just Bernie Sanders, but people like Bernie Sanders. And I think you see it reflected in, in Joe Biden tonight. So that's a good point by Jamal Bowman. Yeah, but I do think ultimately it is this, we needed an old white guy Absolutely. to deliver a more progressive message. And that's why, you know, and, th and that's why I think we're more likely, and I hate to say this, and I'm very tired, so maybe I'll regret this in the morning, but I think that Republicans are more likely to have a female president before Democrats. And it's like the Margaret Thatcher thing, you know, conservatives are able to deliver, you know, are able to use to, to have diverse messengers to deliver the conservative message because people are less scared. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. And I know we're out of time. I do just want to say one more thing, which is as much as we focus on the State of the Union, as much as we focus on national politics, there's a lot of stuff going on at the state level that one of these days you and I should discuss. Florida's bringing out the permitless carry gun bill in their Senate. You know, Nebraska's talking about this abortion bill that rapists 
can become the sole guardian of a baby if like oh. rape is not proven. You know, there's just like there's a lot of shit going on around the country in various states. And if I could just leave any of your viewers with anything today, it's like, yes, the national stuff is so important. The state of the union is important to discuss and to get into those issues and Medicare and Social Security. But, you know, let, let's also, you know, keep focus on that local and state level. Cop City down in Atlanta, look that up, Google that. You know, all these things that are going on around the country, let's keep our eye on that as well. Slade, thank you. Please come back. Absolutely. Anytime. Love you guys. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. 
Brian Stelter is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy Center. Welcome to Fast Politics, Brian Stelter. All right. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm really excited to have you. I really, really wanted to talk to you about, first of all, what has your transition been like and what are you doing now? (laughs) I've been in hibernation for a while. (laughs) I I guess you could tell because I was hiding for a while. I was just, you know, I, I was and I am just like loving stay at home dad life. Does that sound corny? Yeah. It's true. No. I mean, I think like in my mind, there's something about being able to just sort of take a break that is like very luxurious. I'm assuming it'll never happen to me again in my life. And and that's the advice I was given by everybody who came out of the woodwork in August and, and told me, hey, this happened to me once and you should just enjoy the time as long as you possibly can. The timing was spectacular. You know, look, I was sad to see Reliable Sources canceled, but it happened in the middle of August. My kids were about to go to school, you know, go into like my my daughter's kindergarten now. So like all of a sudden I had this whole new life based around their school schedules and all of that. And it's really been a blast. So I want to ask you, like you were so out there in the way that all of us in the, you know, in the punditry industrial complex are out there. (laughs) Does it, I mean, do you, do you miss it? Do you still consume news the same way? Has it changed the way you, are you less depressed? I mean, tell us everything. (laughs) Am I less depressed? I don't miss waking up to a Google news alert (laughs) of my name full of trash, lies, and filth. You can't ever have the Google news alert. I mean, <laughs> well, here I, I mean, here I am admitting to, to not only having it, but checking it, you know, right. reading it when it came in. I don't miss having Fox on in the background and, and then randomly seeing my face while I'm while I'm disparaged and lied about. Like, no, yeah. I, don't, I don't miss that. You know, what, you know what I do miss is booking guests. It's what you do. Right. The delicate dance of booking and getting folks to talk and then trying to get answers out of them. That's an art. And that's that's something that was really fun. And I've started writing for various outlets like The Atlantic. And, and I wrote a piece with Boston Globe just because you know, I want to I start to, uh, to to use those writing muscles because I don't want them to atrophy, you know. Yeah. But it's been so fun to, to experience the news differently. And I don't mean this to say that, like, the news doesn't matter, that you shouldn't, you know, soaking it every day because I I still do consume a lot of news, but it's different when I don't feel the need to be a part of it, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And that's that actually is the sort of the point of this question is like now you have this relationship where you're not part of the news, you're not making the news, you know, you're writing. But, you know, one of the other things you did besides the television show was you had this newsletter that was basically every single day. And that must that must have been a huge, I mean, just a huge burden, because if you miss anything, you must feel just (laughs) terrible. Well, I I loved doing the newsletter because I felt like I thus knew everything that was going on on my beat. It was almost like a it was motivation to make sure I comprehensively knew what was happening everywhere from from Netflix to to Fox, you know. But now now I actually I, I have more appreciation for people that do it. And I find myself thinking there should be more of those curators in the world. What, what, what I mean yeah. by that is, uh, you know, Oliver, Oliver Darcy now does this, the Reliable Sources newsletter. I learn something from it every night and I wish there were more products like it. And maybe they don't all have to be newsletters. That's the kind of thing I've been thinking a lot about is in this environment where we are overwhelmed by information, information saturation, tons of disinformation and just garbage that's out there. 
great editors, great curators should be more valuable than ever. Yeah. I mean, I also, I love a newsletter and I read Oliver's newsletter, but I also read, you know, I was a regular reader of your newsletter and I read Playbook and I read Semaphore. And and I do think there's actually a place for more newsletters, believe it or not. It's not so much that I want more hot takes, though I'm okay with that, but more just that (laughs) I want more curation. And again, and like that is the thing we see that Elon Musk struggles with. And I mean, the rise of Twitter was because it provided a curated forum, right? I mean, at least for readers like us. Yes, I always thought in, in the best days of Twitter, I was able to tune my antenna, you know, left and right and in all these different ways in order to hear the most interesting people in the world. And right. it took some work to, you know, you put some work into your Twitter feed, but you would get out this great output. And that's become harder now in the Elon Musk era. Although I, I do think it's important to note that, you know, the the great dire predictions of the site collapsing into itself have not only not come to pass, they haven't even come yeah. close. There's definitely glitches on Twitter these days, but we used to have the era of the fail whale. But other than Twitter, so to the extent that Twitter is not quite as useful as it used to be, and to the extent that there should be more options like Twitter, there should be more ways to get that curation. That's something I've definitely noticed more now that I'm not, maybe I'm sitting outside the lazy river before I was in the lazy river, but that's a bad metaphor because it sounds lazy and slow. That's not what the news cycle is like. So I'll have to work on that one. Do you think, though, I mean, drudge is another method of curation. It's kind of right-leaning, though anti-Trump. That is another curation site. I mean, right, ultimately. That's true. That's that's a good point. That's that's an interesting model. And one of the great gifts of, of the last few months has been, you know, talking to folks, having lunches and meetings and hearing how other people consume the news and, you know, thinking about this. And and that's what I've heard come up again and again is, you know, that the feeling that, oh yeah, there's, there's, there's not a lot of places or sites like Drudge. Yeah. You might imagine that like CEOs and bigwigs and, you know, all those folks have, you know, <laughs> access to a, a better version of this social or antisocial world. They don't. They don't. You know, they're, yeah. just, they're reading the same stories we are. They're relying on the same outlets we are, the rest of us are. It was a good reminder for me to have my kind of reset in that way. For me, I'm the most interested in what people are reading and then what they're saying about it. Mm-hmm. The thing I spend a lot of time thinking about is like all of our biases, right? So this was one of the things you talked a lot about on your television show was this idea of like, I'm on the opinion side, right? And there's a lot of criticism about straight news. I mean, there's a criticism about opinion, but opinion obviously is opinion. But straight news, what you put in there, what you don't put in there, how you cite things, how you don't cite them. I mean, it just, you know, there really is a lot of room for opinion in straight news. When you say room for opinion in straight news, you mean? No one has no bias. And even the way an outlet covers straight news ends up showing a bias. On days when I would decide to lead the hour with a story about TikTok and not a story about Trump or Biden, then there are inherent choices in all of that, right? I do think you see a, a, a certain biases in news coverage sometimes come through on topics, on coverage of topics like abortion as well. Right. I think there's undeniable examples like that. By and large, I have to say, as someone now, you know, sitting back and, and not necessarily running to the TV when, when news is breaking, although I, I sometimes still do and I, I love watching, I am amazed by the quality of the kind of the day-to-day raw news product that's out there. I guess what I'm feeling this winter is 
I'm, I'm seeing the, the difference between, you know, the, the good and the bad. Like the bad is really bad. There is some stuff out there that's just atrocious. But then, but then the great is really great. And, we, and we, I think we take it for granted. I think we take for granted that there's the AP and the Post and the Reuters and the Times and the CNNs out there gathering the raw material that the rest of us then dissect, talk about, take apart, analyze, make fun of. You know what I mean? It's that raw material, the raw news gathering that gets taken for granted too often. But what's bad? Well, it's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> I'll give you an example of the gr- something that grinds my gears these days. I don't know if this is a billion dollar uh, business uh, that, you know, you, you need a billion dollars to fix this. I don't know. But here, here's, here's the fault for you. There will be a news story that will happen, let's say, on a, uh, let's say on a Monday afternoon. And on a Tuesday morning, I'll still see shows, TV shows, websites still leading with the same story. Right. And it's not, it's not evolved. It hasn't, hasn't changed. They're, they're, just, they're just recapping the news from 20 hours ago. My big thought, my, my kind of fantasy business thing here is, give me a product that once I've heard that news once, you will not repeat it again. Right. <laughs> give me a way to like, okay, yes, I know that the stock market dropped yesterday. You don't need to tell me again in the morning. I'm noticing sometimes kind of the, all that kind of base level repetition that happens. You'll notice that a lot in television news as well, every 10 minutes, they'll summarize that there was a spy balloon. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm aware. I know where it came from. Like, you don't need to give me the two sentences about how this originated. There's just a lot of that kind of repetition for repetition's sake that happens. I do have to say the spy balloon got so much coverage and it was really kind of a Rorschach, right? Like right wing media had a certain sort of feeling about that it was too late and that Biden had done it wrong and weren't too open to any other possibilities. Overall, in the right-wing media, and there are some exceptions, the anti-Biden frame did win out. And, and in some ways, they, they didn't have many other ways to go. It is depressing that we are in an, an information environment where uh, nuggets of information are used as warfare by uh, partisans in order to, uh, to, to lob their side. But to the extent that that is the reality, what other narrative could they have gone with, right? I don't know. Right, 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 right. I also think like, you know, there are people who really do kill it at Fox News. I mean, who are straight journalists who have been there forever. I was thinking about Jennifer. uh, Jennifer Griffin. Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, so there are some really great reporters there that are. I mean, so I do think like you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But listen, I thought the most interesting media story last weekend was that Fox News was the only network to have a live shot of the balloon as it was downed. Right. The major networks did not have a live shot. And that's that's because of the local stations. So it's because the local stations affiliated with the other networks uh, were not there at the beach with a camera pointed at the sky in the right place. So it was a big win for Fox News. And I found it to be an interesting contrast to the other right-wing channels. So uh, Newsmax uh, has been out there making a lot of noise recently. And there are other conservative channels as well. Only Fox had the resources to actually own the spy balloon story. Uh, in fact, Newsmax was running some repeat episode of some talk show when it all happened on Saturday afternoon. So that is a notable difference. And, and then, of course, we could spend an hour with, with the critiques of Fox and, and right. they're all accurate. I mean, my God, they, they ran on the air Friday night and screamed about a possible explosion in the sky over Montana outrageously. Right. That might have come from Wuhan. Unethical behavior yeah. by Fox News in prime time. I mean, the, my goodness, we all knew the balloon had moved past Montana. Some person posted a video that was clearly, it must, must have been fake. Fox ran with it like it was actually real news. I mean, that's right. that's embarrassing by, by Fox's primetime shows. But 
my point is the network deserved credit for, for having that live shot on Saturday. And in contrast to its conservative rivals like Newsmax, which, which did not have anything. I think it's interesting in those moments when you can see the difference between these outlets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is bad, Molly. Now you've got me like talking like an old school TV news or blogger, like like I'm back in my dorm room blogging about TV. You have for so long covered the media in this very like methodical way. I mean, are you worried you're going to miss something or no? Are you just delighted? Tell me if you think this this is crazy. I think right now we're in a, period of repeat episodes. And so what I mean by that is Donald Trump's running for president again, but kind of low energy in a low energy way, right? And there's more investigations into Trump and for that for years. It, it feels to me like a series of repeat episodes. Oh, yeah. And I don't mean that to say, oh, you know, it's, 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 uh, listen, I still, I still tune in. I still love watching CNN. I still listen to all my podcasts. Like I'm still in it as a consumer, right. but it doesn't feel to me like we're in an environment where there's Something other than chat GPT, of course, and, and the rise of AI, it doesn't feel to me like we're in a moment where there's something profoundly new happening in our news environment. So maybe that's why I've, I've just, you know, been enjoying playing Mario with my kids so much. <laughs> I mean, I do think that's a really good and important point that you're talking about just now, which is I think everyone feels like it is, you know, this Trump. It's funny. There was this polling that like spun a whole news cycle. This Washington Post ABC poll that was yeah. a thousand people that said nobody's looking forward to a rematch. I'm sorry. Like, I thought the methodology on that was like a little bit kooky. I'm not like completely on board with that. And also, like, if you see the statistics, like, they are, you know, the previous poll had a totally different spin. So I'm just not like totally on board with that. But my reaction to that poll is it's so funny about the poll up. My reaction to that poll was it's a repeat episode right. because we had the same polling last year that said that Americans did not want a rematch and did not want Trump. Invite. So I was like, even the poll about the rep repeat is a repeat. <laughs> I mean, clearly, if we've learned anything from the midterms, you know, like I had all these pollsters on the podcast and I was like, you know, you guys, like your polls were wrong. And they were like, no, the way you interpreted them were wrong. We were still, you know, there's a 10 point margin of error or whatever. The polls are meant to give you a sense or, but the reality is people don't use polls that way. They still use them and, and they do encourage horse race journalism. They do. They do encourage horse race journalism. And I think for the rest of our lives, there will always be too much horse race journalism for right. the for the taste of some, and that then it becomes about how you point your antenna, and if you if you can adjust your antenna, or your curation, or your own news feed to 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 blot some of that out and to, to focus on other things, then I think I think people are better off. I think about polling like I think about my glasses, like I put on my glasses to to watch you know to see far away, and like you know otherwise things are a little blurry. Like when I look at polls, I don't want to have my glasses on. I don't want to see them perfectly. I want them to be a little blurry because that is the reality, you know, that's the reality. You should, you know, know that it's not a perfect exact answer, but it's instead, you know, a ballpark estimate that's probably right most of the time. The problem happens when we put our, when I put the glasses on, we cover the polls as if they are exact, right? Right. No, no, I think that's right. And I mean, I think ultimately what we're seeing is, for example, we had this Colorado congressman on the podcast, Adam Frisch. He ran against Lauren Boebert. Everyone was saying, you're crazy to have him on. He doesn't have a prayer. He lost by like 500 votes. So like, I mean, polls do ultimately dictate money. And that money does ultimately dictate in a lot of these races who wins. As much as like someone who's more sophisticated like you 
might theoretically look at them as a near or far kind of thing. A lot of people are looking at them as like gospel. Mm -hmm. I think that is true. But I think at the same time, we have an ever more, well, two things are true at the same time, right? I was going to say there's an ever more sophisticated audience of political consumers who are much, much savvier about this world than they were, you know, a couple of decades or two ago. However, yes, there's there's also people who clearly still still reply to those ridiculous uh, emails from from the RNC and the DNC, not the RNC and DNC, but, you know, the Democrats' uh, yeah. emails and the Trump emails that are like obviously outright lies. They, they, they lie to me every day. I get the emails for fun. Clearly, people are still donating and clearly some people still fall for those emails. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Thank you, Brian. I hope you'll come back. <laughs> Thank you. I know you, our dear listeners, are very busy and you don't have time to sort through the hundreds of pieces of punditry each week. This is why every week I put together a newsletter of my five favorite articles on politics. If you enjoy the podcast, you will love having this in your inbox every Friday. So sign up at fastpoliticspod.com and click the tab to join our mailing list. That's fastpoliticspod.com. Ann Alberg and Deborah McClutchy are the directors of The Martha Mitchell Effect, which is streaming now on Netflix. Welcome to Fast Politics, Deborah. Thank you. And Anne. Thanks for having us. Okay, so you guys are here to talk about The Martha Mitchell Effect. Explain to us what that is and how you decided to make this short movie. So... The Martha Mitchell effect is actually a, a medical diagnosis um, that was coined in the 1980s by Brendan Mayer. And it essentially posits that a medical professional deems a patient's story delusional when, in fact, they are telling the truth. And it was named after Martha Mitchell because that, in fact, is what happened to her. Martha Mitchell was a, a Republican cabinet wife under Nixon's administration. And she essentially was a very outspoken, telegenic woman. She was someone who didn't want to hang with the political wives of the time who were very traditional and quiet. She wanted to hang with the boys and she was incredibly popular. In fact, there was an article that was written at the time, a survey actually, that she was just as famous as Jackie O. So she was essentially a household name. And the only one who would really talk to the press in the sort of buttoned up Nixon administration. You know, and the Nixon administration loved it because they could sort of harness her popularity to sort of push through different policies or talking points that they would slip to her, sort of slide into her. Yes. She had a sort of interesting transition from cheerleader to Cassandra. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she, you know, pre-Watergate, they loved her and they thought she was amusing and they harnessed her popularity. But then after the Watergate burglary, they realized they we're going to have a hard time controlling her. And she was talking out and they were worried about what she knew. They were really more worried that she was going to shine a spotlight on this sort of brewing scandal. And as a result, um, she was contained against her will in a hotel in Newport Beach and tranquilized against her will and silenced. So the lesson here is never go to Newport Beach. (laughs) Deborah, will you explain to us why Martha Mitchell matters now? Sure. Martha Mitchell matters now because the film really is a case study in gaslighting. 
So gaslighting was the Merriam-Webster word of the year last year. Gaslighting has happened to many prominent people, although it can happen in everyday life. It could happen to women. It can happen to men. It can happen to a country. You know, we would argue that our country was gaslighted in the previous administration very often. So she matters now and her story matters now because it can really be a way for people to understand the mechanisms of gaslighting through her story and through this case study and really understand what it is, how they can fight against it especially women, and just see the gaslighting that had happened and also abuse of power. You know, that's what happened in Watergate is that it was an extreme abuse of power. You know, democracy was on the line, and that's all too common in our current political climate right now, unfortunately. The thing that I think is interesting about this phenomenon is that she went from sort of the kind of the toast of the town to having a pretty grim ending. Will you guys talk a little bit about that? In a lot of ways, this is sort of a riches to rag story. Yeah. And yeah, it's unfortunate. It, it is kind, it is ultimately a tragedy. I mean, she did have, you know, sort of a honeymoon period, we call it, right before Nixon resigned, where she sort of did a press tour. And people were starting to recognize, oh, she was right. Like, we should have listened to her originally. But then, unfortunately, she got very sick and died prematurely and never really saw, you know, sort of what she could have become. I also relate to this story in a certain way, which is like so many women of that time, they sort of were able to only be one thing, you know, a socialite, a mother, a, a, you know, there wasn't a lot of availability for women to be other things than just one thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, Sally Quinn says in the film that, you know, women at the time were meant to be hostesses. So yeah. they dealt with the social aspect of life. And, you know, Martha Mitchell was the wife of John Mitchell, the attorney general, and was getting a lot of attention, really enjoyed it. And her husband actually really enjoyed it, too. So she was unusual in that sense. You know, she was a cabinet wife and a celebrity. But I can't think of any cabinet wives right now, actually, that are celebrities. Right. Yeah. I mean, I also think that ultimately, you know, she was sort of t and also ultimately she wasn't really she's he sort of took her kid, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the story of, of Martha, little Martha Mitchell is quite sad. I mean, it does seem like John Mitchell had a great influence on his yeah. on the daughter. And and yeah, Martha died alone and she was estranged from her daughter. It's pretty grim. When you guys were making this movie, what did you learn? We had to spend a lot of time digging into the White House tapes, which is, oh. yeah, it's a tough, tough road because uh, it's just so hard to hear and it's so voluminous. Um, but what I found the most fascinating was how much Nixon talked about Martha. I mean, it was constant. He was, you know, I think at first he was like amused by her. And, you know, him and his wife spent a lot of time with John and Martha. And then I think he was jealous of her popularity. And then I think he was really scared of her because he wasn't used to women like Martha. You know, uh, he just wasn't. And so there were lots of feelings, lots of really awful things that he said about her, about her appearance. I mean, typical things that you would imagine gendered, you know, sort of discrimination and such. That was my biggest takeaway. What about you, Deborah? I would add to that, not even in terms of this particular story, but that 
just that these stories exist in the archive. Like Anne and I realized as we were digging, like, wow, this story is actually here, but no one really dug deep enough to tell it. And so we were really excited about exhuming the story um, and bringing it out, you know, in terms of not all the president's men via a different lens, you know, via a lens of a woman who experienced her Watergate story. So I learned actually that there's a lot of stories like this that are just hidden. But if you look, you can find them. Ultimately, she's sort of become a celebrity posthumously. Is there sort of regret from John Mitchell or from the daughter? Or is there any sort of sense? Is there any sense that they have looked back on her story differently now? Well, John Mitchell has passed. So right. we, no, no, we, I we know. don't know. Yeah, yeah. We've tried to reach out to Martha Mitchell and she wouldn't talk to us or doesn't talk to many people in, in the press. We did reach out to Clyde Jennings, who was Martha's son from a previous marriage, and he very much agreed that his mother was maligned. And um, unfortunately, he couldn't talk to us either, but uh, he did agree with us. And I think I think was pleased, you know, that that her story was finally being told, her side of the story. It is interesting to me that she sort of became a celebrity in light of the similarity between Trump and Nixon. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we haven't really talked about this, but it just came to mind. I mean, the, you know, the similarities are so uncanny, but I feel like a couple months ago, we saw Trump was having a rally and it, and he was throwing out red hats that said Trump was right. And I was like, oh my Lord, that comes from Martha was right, from the funeral bouquet that was left anonymously at her funeral, that this sort of like tagline has sort of you know, sort of transformed itself and like 50 years later is sort of coming into the ether. I mean, that's just one example. There are many. It's such a story of the ages. Do you guys think that there is an equivalent today or do you think that just because we've sort of moved on as as a society, there is no equivalent today of, of what happened to Martha Mitchell? That's a question that, yeah, that we often get asked. Oh, it's too <laughs> yeah. bad. It's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, in terms of a Republican sort of turning on the party in some ways, like Liz Cheney comes to mind, but that's not a perfect example. It's kind of tricky today to say. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't have someone like Martha Mitchell today, or you probably wouldn't because her life was so limited in a way that was very much of women of the time. But right. I mean, you definitely saw the Republican Party turned on Liz Cheney in a in a similar fashion. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, Liz Cheney is definitely, you know, a comparison, but Liz Cheney is an elected official. Like Martha had soft power and you really don't see that today. You don't see Karen Pence coming out you know, and testify in the January 6th committee. I mean, in a weird way, I mean, he's going to be mad at me for saying this, but the closest in a way is George Conway. I agree. Yes. Because he's the spouse who just like couldn't, who who like couldn't look pretty and shut up. Absolutely. And it it also affected his family. I mean, so much of Martha's story is is sort of, you know, the, the personal side of Watergate, but it really is about a marriage, right? It's about a dissolution of a marriage. And it's also... We, we, you know, we term it like a love triangle between Nixon and Martha vying for the attention of John Mitchell. And in the end, John Mitchell betrays his wife or his boss. Yeah. I mean, that is so incredibly Republican Party. That <laughs> <laughs> of the time and also now. 
Yes. It's just a sort of interesting, very historic moment in a way that Martha Mitchell was. Did you guys feel that it led you to something else? I mean, are there stories you want to tell now that have come from this experience? I I would say there should be a I'm not sure if I want to tell this or I don't want to speak for Deborah, but but, yeah, but I do feel like there should be a film about Dorothy Hunt. Tell us who that is. Dorothy Hunt was Howard Hunt's wife. And Howard Hunt was one of oh. the, he wasn't a burglar, but he was involved with Gordon Liddy in sort of coming up with this gemstone right. scheme. And gemstone is what ultimately led to the Watergate break in into the Democratic National Convention by the Nixon minions. And, you know, at one point, Dorothy Hunt was involved. She mysteriously died in a plane crash with $10,000 of cash that was meant for some <laughs> of the Cuban burglars. So I just, I just feel like she was so involved Amazing. and there was something there and maybe the HBO plumbers will get into it. But I don't know. I feel like she deserves a documentary on her own, right? Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to get killed in a plane crash with all that cash, I would want a doc. I mean, that's the least they can fucking do. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. So what's next for you guys? We're very excited about the Academy Award nomination. That's yes. what's coming up next. Right. It's super so can... exciting. So that's, yeah, that's the next thing immediate. Well, that is very exciting. I hope you guys win and it changes your <laughs> whole lives. And then you come back someday oh when God, you guys that. have moved on. This was great. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Molly. This was so great to talk to you. Thank you, Molly. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jug Fast. Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, because the 15th try gets you Speaker of the House. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is pre-gaming Biden's State of the Union speech, doing all off-the-record talks with journalists and pundits getting ready to try and push back against Biden's good economic numbers and uh, his bipartisan message. How's that going for him? Well, it's hard to know because it's all off the record. But I would just say, as someone who who sort of knows how the sausage gets made, Republicans are better, I think, at doing more off-the-record talks with journalists and I wonder if some of these Democrats could be helped by doing more off the record talks with journalists. I think that it's good to talk to people, even if it's off the record. And so my moment of fuckery today is the incredible annoyance of Mr. Kevin McCarthy and his uh, obstructionist government trying to pregame the uh, State of the Union before it's even happened. And for that, Kevin McCarthy gets our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. to pick up truck bed chaos meet decked game-changing usa made full bed length drawers for tools and gear waterproof dustproof lockable secure whether you're working hunting fishing camping or just getting out of town and introducing decked deco cases tough modular problem-solving cases built for the truck job site campsite or garage say goodbye to random bins and tie downs order now at deck.com slash iheart for free shipping decked your truck your rules deck.com forward slash iheart When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today.